Welcome to the Hey Salespeople podcast, where we focus on delivering immediately actionable best practices for sales professionals. I'm your host, Jeremy Donovan from SalesLoft. Hey, salespeople. Today, it is my great pleasure to have Nick Sigalski on with us. Welcome, Nick. Thank you for having me, Jeremy. I'm excited because Nick is the co-host of one of my favorite podcasts, 30 Minutes to President's Club. Besides being a co-host of 30 Minutes to President's Club podcast, Nick is also an enterprise account executive at SurePoint Technologies, and they are a legal billing and accounting tech company. As usual, we're not going to talk companies, we're going to talk sales. And what's fascinating to me is Nick's journey and also all the things that he's learned from his, from his guests that he's been able to apply to, to his day-to-day work. In order to get to know him a little better, Nick, I'd love to ask you about an interesting or unusual hobby of yours. How do, how do you spend your time when you're not trying to sell sling legal tech software? Well, I don't know if it's an unusual hobby, but I still get on the wrestling mat pretty frequently. I was a college wrestler and... I don't know. There's something really special about being punched in the face and losing all day on the sales floor and then going onto the wrestling mat and getting clubbed in the head. And that's sort of the way wrestling works is if you take the other guy down on one of your 10 attempts, you've done really, really well, but that means nine of them didn't go so hot. So I still get on the mat all the time. It really helps me physically and mentally. We, we have brought this up on the show a few times about sports and sales. Does having been an athlete or being an athlete have an impact on whether or not someone is likely to be successful in sales? I can only speak to my own personal experience, but 100%. Every single day when I'm selling and working and I get confronted with uh, making tough decisions, I think back to stuff that my high school wrestling coach taught me. I remember the first day of practice, he said, discipline is doing what you don't want to do when you don't want to do it. And when it comes time to make some cold calls, I hear his voice in my head, which makes it really tough some days. But that has affected my sales. You know, the fact that I've done decently well as a salesperson. The other thing that has, has really helped is one of the things you talked about was you always focus on the process, not the product. And you might interpret that as focus on the inputs or the things you can control, not necessarily the outputs or the result. And so I focus on that. Everything else, if I win, I win. If I lose, I lose. But I'm okay. I did some data uh, analysis, as I often do, on sports and sales. I took a sample of 2,000 people from one company and found those people who were in sports. That was Salesforce. So in those sports where individual performance was what mattered, that's actually where there is a correlation between performance and sports participation. Interestingly, in team sports like basketball, baseball, where it's not as much about the individual Participation doesn't matter. So kind of kind of an interesting, interesting, but it makes sense to me. You can explain it at least in hindsight. Yeah, I don't know. I think there's this perception that like athletes are going to do so much better in sales. I don't necessarily think that is the case. I think understanding like any sport requires discipline, I think, and consistency and hard work and sacrifice. And there's a lot of other things that do that. You know, you could have been involved in theater or you could have been involved in art or any other discipline. I'm not totally bought into the, oh, athletes are so much better in sales. I know for me, it made an impact. Is there anything else for you to either dispel or to confirm that you think are predictive factors in whether or not a salesperson is likely to be successful? I don't know. I don't think I have any other predictive factors. I think if somebody is willing to do the work prospecting, and they're willing to accept feedback and get better. And then they're really focused on not necessarily like winning and closing the deal, but like getting to the truth with the customer, because that actually is how you win deals. 
I don't know. Those are the, those are the big three to me. It's prospect. Can you take coaching and feedback? Because being able to adapt is really, really important. You can, you might even call it evolve. And so I think self-reflection is another really important attribute. I've been writing in a journal every single night since I was in sixth grade. And so what it's helped me do is adapt much more quickly and identify patterns or, or, or habits or routines that I want to try to cement. And then the inverse, some that I want to try to move away from. Wow, I've done this sort of consistently the past couple of days. And so by, I think, observing my behavior on a daily basis, it's helped me make changes and then progress and develop much more quickly. One of the skills of being a successful account executive is to kind of get to the heart of what's going on with your prospect or customer. I find that when people repeat things, it's probably because at some point they were not doing a good job of that. Where did you learn that that was an important part of being a successful salesperson? Well, there, there's two reasons salespeople don't want to get to the truth. One, the truth might hurt, and it might be a reflection of they didn't show a very great demo, or they didn't explain the, the pricing structure properly, and now the customer doesn't understand why it's so much higher than somewhere else, or um, any, any other things that they could have controlled or done differently, and now they're not going to get that deal, and it's wrong. And so they're afraid of facing the truth because it's a reflection of themselves. The other outcome is they've got this hope that it's still there, like you still... I don't know. I try to have a really, really lean and small pipeline. I don't want to, I mean, I want to prospect really aggressively so I can bring stuff into the pipeline. But once it's in, it should either be progressing or it should be out. And so I want to know from the customer, are you interested in like moving forward and continuing this conversation? And if not, that's totally okay. And you sort of change your focus from that to that from, all right, let's get this deal done, which don't get me wrong. Like that's important to get the deal done. I have a quota I'm trying to hit. Things get a little bit easier though. Like if I am genuinely interested in the customer's feedback after a demo and I sensed that they weren't crazy about the analytics dashboards that I showed them, I might ask them. I might say, Jeremy, I appreciated you getting on the demo last week and thanks for getting on the phone to reconnect with me. I guess I wanted to start it with, I got the sense that a couple members of your team weren't crazy uh, about the analytics dashboards that I was showing. And I actually almost want to lead with that because... I don't know, it's sort of cringy when you've got this happy, over-enthusiastic salesperson who almost tries to replace like having a business conversation with extreme enthusiasm, which is probably something that I did. For a buyer, it's like, ah, I actually didn't like your thing and you're coming in super hot and you're so excited about it. So I always try to lead with, hey, I got the sense you weren't crazy about this thing. But if I can sort of bring the stuff to the table that I don't feel good about, the buyer will then say, yeah, okay, well, that's one thing, but there's 18 other things that we really did like. And so we want to talk about those. I don't want this to be negative. The other thing is what used to make me lose so much sleep at night was I'm thinking about my deals. And while well, I haven't talked to the real decision maker in this deal, and this one, I'm worried the pricing might be too high. And this one, they weren't crazy about the demo. And I would legitimately be laying, laying awake at night thinking about these things. And then I realized with the getting to the truth thing, well, what if I just asked? I'm sort of concerned because I know that you said there were a lot of other cheaper options out there when we had our pricing review call. And I guess I'm wondering, why wouldn't you just go with one of those if they have the exact same functionality as us? When I started asking those questions, deals ended up falling out because I said, you're right, you're way too expensive. We'd never go with you. Okay, great. Well, now I can refocus all of my energy that I was putting towards thinking about and following up and checking in with that deal to prospecting new deals. But then a lot of times I found out, oh, no, that's not really a big deal because the three other people we looked at didn't have the feature that we needed. Or It's uh, reminded me of the former chief revenue officer of LogMeIn, Larry D'Angelo. He was speaking to this group and he showed a picture of their Salesforce instance. And in Salesforce on their opportunities, they had this checkbox and it was, are we winning? 
and he would only count deals in the pipeline if that check if that thing was checked. And I think every week they would like uncheck it so that the reps would actively have to go in and re-verify. But it wasn't just about the Salesforce checkbox. It was intended for the reps to go ask very directly to the rep, are we winning? I'm not crazy about the are we winning question, partially because it's a yes, no. And I actually want to get more information from them. So the way that I actually do ask like the are we winning question is like, I'm Jeremy, I know you guys were looking at a couple different options, including us. And I'm, I guess I'm curious about how you feel like we stack up against the rest of the group. Now I've asked a question that's open-ended and I'm just trying to get some detail. And that's a little bit easier for a buyer to answer because the are we winning, like they might not want to play all of their cards, especially in a competitive deal where they're planning on using one vendor to negotiate against the other. So even if they know you're the surefire choice, they're going to go with you, they might not want to say that, or they might not feel like they have the ability to say that with you. So I just asked, I'm curious how you feel like we stack up against the rest. Because now I get information and there might be areas that we're winning and areas we're not. And now I know where I need to do some work in that deal. I love that. I'm going to use that. How frequently when you actually close deals, you have a champion, champion helping you through? I would say infrequently. Part of the reason for that is like I'm selling a billing and accounting system to law firms. I like to say it's almost like heart surgery. What we are doing is proposing heart surgery. And so there's a lot of fear and anxiety and worry associated with the sale. So of course, I can find deals with outbound prospecting, but there's got to be a lot of pain in order for there to be a sale in my world, I think. I mean, there are times you have someone who's a champion. They really like my thing versus the competitors for a specific reason. But I would more say there's like a, there's someone who's sort of shepherding the deal through on their side. There's a main point of contact, someone who I'm consistently regrouping with. It's usually the CFO of the law firms. But I don't know. The word champion, I just don't feel like it matches with how that person plays a, a role in the sale. You know, I'm a particular, particular type of fussy buyer. And one thing I always do in the sales process is I always ask, what differentiates you versus the competition? And after you tell me that, I'm going to go verify that with the other party. Do you get that question often for people that people directly ask you how, how you're different from, you know, vendor B? Yeah. And there are so many points of differentiation because like, I mean, there's probably 40 different modules that are part of the billing and accounting program that I sell. And the way that the legal tech space plays out, it's really strange. And so I am asked that question. I'm not necessarily asked, oh, and I'm going to go independently verify that with the competitors. But I don't know, the way that I usually would answer that question is the way that I just said it to you. Like there's about 400 different ways that we're probably different And you don't want me to sit here and ramble about all 400. I'm sure there's probably a couple that matter more to you than others. And so depending on where I am in the sale, I might, I'm deep in, I know the areas of differentiation. If it's early, I might just ask, like, are there particular areas that you're curious about? Because I can focus on those then. For folks listening, you know, take Nick's tip to find the differentiator and then take my experience of like, be very careful that the thing that you put out there as a differentiator is is valid. Go test it yourself if you're saying your software does something that the other guy's uh, or gal's software does not do. My approach with competitors is they're good. They're probably better than the solution that you have in place right now or whatever you're doing right now. And so you'd probably have a better outcome than today, like your current state to your future state if you went with them would probably be better. I think they're good. I think we're great, though. I never insult the competition. That's the norm these days, especially because... Most product categories, the competition is so similar. And the truth of the matter, 
and Clayton Christensen talks about this in The Innovator's Dilemma in a slightly different context, but the truth of the matter is that most competitive products meet the actual typical needs of the buyer. What do you sway them on as a seller if the base functionality that they need is already in the product, whether it's you or the competition? Well, this is a great question because I literally am selling an accounting system and you could solve your problem with buying QuickBooks or you could buy something super, super specialized. I mean, you have to tie it to what's important to them. And so different things are important to different prospective customers for me. So I don't think I can give you a cut like this is what I lean on 90% of the time because what's important to one guy is not important to the other. I think two ways come to mind. This maybe free juices for us to free associate on it a bit more. But one is... Like, I do think this, whatever the sizzle sells the steak, right? I think a little sizzle in an advanced feature that the customer may not ever really even use. I mean, I don't want that to be the case, but I I think it biases you. It's hard not to. We're humans and we're not entirely rational, logical decision makers. I don't actually eat beef, but if I did and I, I like smelled really delicious. It's like when you drive by the Burger King and it smells great. So actually, I could answer that question, Jeremy, now that I thought about it a little bit more. like I wouldn't even say that this is like a feature or a thing that the software does is I I want as many people from the prospects organization to talk to people at my organization. And so I think a lot about like almost optional meetings in the sales process where it was when you said the word sizzle that made me think like, the roadmap of my product like has some really exciting stuff in the future. And of course, competitors also have exciting roadmaps. But if I get my my head of product, my VP of product to talk to maybe their CIO at the law firm and they have a really exciting conversation and the competitor doesn't do that. Even if the roadmaps are identical or 80% the same, we're the ones who have had that conversation. So one of the things that really helps with differentiation for me is, I don't know where uh, who posted this, but I read like most sales are lost because of indigestion, not starvation. The way I interpreted that was there's so much information about your company and your product and why you're different and why you're better and why you're great and how you can solve this problem. And then there's all that information also coming at buyers from the competition that it's so hard for them to like remember who's what and who's better and who, why. And so I feel like the more conversations that I can facilitate, like that aren't even me talking, it's someone from my org and their org, and maybe it's not I'd said the CFO is the central hub and I'm sort of the central hub, but we're just helping facilitate a ton of conversations. And if I can set up twice as many as the competition, that does really great things for my win rate because now we're just having way more opportunities for meals to be chewed. There's a lot more chewing that's happening. So no more indigestion. The food's there. We're, we're actually understanding it. It's like comprehension is one of the areas that I think we fail the most with, with buyers as salespeople is there's a lot of info that we're communicating, especially in a complex sale, and helping them to understand that is maybe the most important thing. I love that you went there with with multi-threading, and and multi-threading is a means to an end, right? It's and I think the ultimate end is: Do I, as a buyer, believe that this vendor will help me achieve the business outcome that I'm seeking? I have zero doubt that the technology of either vendor will do that for me. But what I need is I want to make sure that. I'm going to get the advice that I need to work on the people in the process that are going to make it successful, right? Because so much technology just sits on the shelf. And I am hyper-focused on like the last mile of the people in the process thing. It's also risk for me, right? As if I, if I as a buyer make this purchase and it doesn't work out, that reflects as a failure on me. And I don't want to fail. In some cases, those failures can be career limiting, right? Like I don't think this purchase for me was would be you know one way or the other, but I don't want to fail. 
I wanted to circle back to one other thing, by the way, uh, that you mentioned is earlier in your career, you exercised your enthusiasm, which I know you have from the podcast that we did. And just in general, uh, you bring in my energy level up. I remember taking a, a sales training class a long time ago where they mapped out effectively social styles of humans. Sometimes that's in the DISC format, though I learned a variation on DISC, which was analytical, expressive. Most salespeople are expressives. Amiable, sort of quiet and friendly and reserved. And then analytical, which is where I where I kind of fall squarely into. So drivers, expressives, amiables, and analyticals. And what they were trying to teach us was to adapt our style tone match, basically, to tone match to the style of the of the buyer. It would be interesting to do a study on this, right? But it, it, like, I guess in your personal experience, have you found that, A, are you able to do that? And B, is it really a thing? Does it really help? I think so. And I think you should. It's like small talk, even. Here's, a, here's an actual example. I'm sure you've been on calls where you show up and you can tell from the tone of the voice, or if you've got the camera on, you can see the body language, that person wants to get into it right away. And so you get into it right away. I have other people where I talk about sushi for 12 minutes. And it's great. We have a really nice conversation. And then the next time I go up to Portland, I know where I'm going to go get sushi. So you change based upon how they act. So yeah, you can. But if I get really excited about something, I'm going to get really excited about something. Like one of the things that I love talking about is one of my favorite conversations recently has been our pricing proposal conversations because the model that my organization sells our thing in is different than a lot of the competitors. And so I love talking about how that model is different and why it's different and why it's important. And there are some really like key differentiators there. And so I have fun having that conversation. I mean, you can even hear my my cadence, my tone, like I'm getting excited about it. So yes, you should try to match a little bit because I mean, it's weird otherwise. It's like if you're hanging out with a bunch of friends and everyone, you show up at the house and everyone's watching a movie and they're sort of chill and you're like coming in super hot. Okay. You got to match the group a little bit, match the other person a little bit, but um, don't just mute yourself. I'm with you. I, I think part of it is how do you catch yourself, right? Is especially if you're an enthusiastic person and expressive and you're like, jazzed and energetic. And if someone else were watching this, they would see a prospect who might be raising their guard. How do you detect that there may be a mismatch? I, I wish I could give you something concrete to latch on to, but it's sort of like social skills. I mean, you you look at the other person and you listen to their pitch and their cadence. And I mean, I think you have to be interested in the other person first. And so part of this is you you almost want to get the other person. Like if you think about how you can practically do this, if I just showed up to a sales call with you, Jeremy, and I said, great to speak with you. Here's the agenda for today. We're going to talk about this, this, and this. All right. So point number one, we wanted to talk about, and I just get into it. Well, I've given you no opportunity to speak or communicate or share, and you might've had a different agenda, even if that's what we agreed the agenda was the last time we met, because stuff might've changed for you. So I guess, how do you do it? Well, you have to observe the other person and care about them and listen to them. But every, every sales podcast guest says you've really got to be interested in the customer. I think the way that you do that, though, is you say, Jeremy, I'm thrilled to be talking with you today. I know we talked about a couple items on the agenda last meeting, but things might have changed for you. I'm curious, is there anything that you'd really like to make sure that we cover in today's session? And then I shut up. Because now I've given you an opportunity to at least speak and share. And because you might say, no, let's just get down to it. I've got a hard stop in 20 minutes. Or you might say, oh, no, not really. Um, yeah, I think we were going to talk a little bit about the next demo we were going to set. And But how was your weekend, Nick? So I think the way that you do it is I want the other person talking as much as possible early in the meeting. Now, in a group context, what I used to do when I would show up 
maybe there's three people on the buyer side and it's just me. I would do what I just explained and I would say, is there anything in particular you all really want to add to the agenda or make sure that we cover today? And then one person would answer and I'd say, okay, cool. Well, we're going to add that item to the agenda and cover my other things. What I do now is I ask each person individually by name. And I do that really intentionally because one, just because what Jeremy cares about might not be what what Armand cares about covering in that meeting. And so I want to give each person an opportunity to speak. The other piece is sort of logistical. I don't know if anyone's ever been on a Zoom meeting where someone couldn't get their audio to work, but I almost want to break the participation seal with each person because once you've participated in the meeting, you're much more apt to participate down the line. If I don't engage somebody right in the beginning, there's a chance their audio is not set up or they don't really feel like they're included and they're not going to speak up and participate as much. I want everybody talking, not just one person. Uh, such a great tip. Um, we unfortunately have to wrap up. I think we had the same problem when I was a guest on on your show that we wanted to keep going, or at least I wanted to keep going. I don't know about you and Armando, but I'm just thinking I'm, I'm going to go listen to a few more episodes. I've got you guys subscribed on my, on my uh, I guess you call it an Android phone. Unfortunately, we're coming to the end of the end of our time together. But I'd love to ask you, as I go off on my walk later today, what episode should I listen to on 30 Minutes to Podcast to get inspired? My, my favorite episode of 30 Minutes to President's Club was Charles Mulbauer's first appearance on the show. He talks about something called the humbling disclaimer, which is not something he invented, but the way that he explained it changed selling and buying for me, actually. My co-host Armand and I uh, invest in real estate together. And we bought a $500,000 four-unit apartment building in Texas just a couple weeks after we recorded that episode. And Charles taught us some things on that show that helped us negotiate an additional $75,000 off of the purchase price. So I call that one a $75,000 episode. I can send you the link if you want to put it in the show notes to go check that one out. So Nick, it was such a pleasure having you on as a guest today. If people want to learn more about you, I would assume have them check out 30 Minutes of President's Club and check you out on LinkedIn. How will they find 30 Minutes of President's Club? You can Google 30 Minutes to President's Club. And I think we've done a halfway decent job with SEO. So it should come up. You can also go to 30mpc.com, 30mpc.com. And if you're really struggling, you can connect with me on LinkedIn and I will help direct you. I accept all LinkedIn connection requests, except the ones where somebody says, Nick, I'd like to sell you some leads or have you ever considered investing in Bitcoin? I usually ignore those ones, but everyone else, I will connect with you. We have the same policy and, and I combine your two approaches, which is whenever I want to find you, I just put 30 MPC into Google and that, that brings me right to where I need to go. Well, awesome. Keep doing great work and keep producing great episodes so I can, I can entertain myself in my walks. Hey, Salespeople is a production made in partnership with Frequency Media. I'm your host, Jeremy Donovan. This podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever podcasts are found. Thanks for listening to the Hey Salespeople podcast.